Hello, and welcome to the Back Issue Spotlight on the Comic Book Page Podcast. My name is John Mann. In this episode, we'll be having a spoiler-filled discussion about an older comic book storyline. In this back issue spotlight, I'm joined by Sam, and we're going to be discussing the Tower of Babel arc from JLA number 43 to 46, published back in the year 2000. Now, this story was written by Mark Wade with art by Howard Porter with Steve Scott filling in on the last issue. Sam, how you doing tonight? I'm wonderful, John. How are you? I am doing well. Now, I have got to say that Mark Wade is a writer that I just I really enjoy a lot of his stuff. I think he's got a good sensibility of the DC Universe in particular. I loved his work at other companies as well. And I thought, by and large, he had a fairly good run on the Justice League. I mostly agree. I will say this, as I go back and read through this era, and I've noticed it, uh, we've been doing the JLA Avengers with on the book club, mm-hmm. and as I'm reading this, and kind of stuff from this, it's weird. I remember the late 90s as having great art, but there's something in this era about the coloring, or the inking, or the way they're doing the transfers, that there's something about the art that just seems a little odd, because it doesn't. Like I said, that book doesn't, in some places, doesn't look like classic Perez to me. This doesn't really look like classic Porter. I have noticed there's something in the art in a few years where I don't think they quite had the digital coloring or transferring to the point they've got it now. Oh, absolutely not. Because this is the era, give or take a couple of years on either side, where there was really starting to be that massive transition from the old school art style to the the digital coloring of the art and such. Yep. A matter of fact, Malibu really made huge strides in that area. The rumor was that was one of the reasons Marvel wanted to buy them out is just to get their their coloring department. Yeah. And there were also changes happening in printing technology and stuff like that. I guess it was more the mid 80s where they went to the Baxter and the Mondo formats and stuff like that. And there was, anytime you, you shift technology, there's some, some growing pains at times. Yeah. And again, I wouldn't say any of this art is bad. It's just, it's not what I'd expect from Porter, to be honest. And it's, but again, it looks very much like some other things from this era. So I don't want to necessarily say it's the artist as much as there was something going on in the technology that seemed to, artists were still getting used to. Well, I'll, I'll say that, I mean, Howard Porter does a a fine job telling the story and conveying what's going on and stuff like that. There's nothing wrong with his art, but I'm also not a huge fan of of that style. There's something about it where the characters seem, I mean, they're not anatomically off, but it's almost like they seem just a little too wide, if, if you know what I mean. Well, yeah, and the jaws and chins, but again, Perez, who I don't know doesn't do that. I even noticed it in some of the JLA Avengers. There's something in this era that seems to be throwing things off a little bit. Well, JLA Avengers would have been three years after this. Yeah, and again, there's it, some sometimes, again, some of those pages are gorgeous. Some of them, the inking seems very thick, very blocky, not Perez-like. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the chins and mouth seem to be kind of extra wide. And again, I don't know what it is, but... Like I said, I've noticed it in enough books from this era 
and enough artists I know before and after this era that it's, I don't think it's just the artist. I would agree with that. I think it's a lot more on the coloring because I think this is one where it feels like they might have been using digital colors. They may or may not have been, but certainly a wider color palette than, you know, old school comics, but it doesn't have the the Photoshop effects, the gradients, the exactly the yeah. nuances that we have in today's art in color. Yes. Yeah. And like I said, some places, and there's pages in here, there's pages in a lot of books from that era that the inking just seems ridiculously heavy handed. And again, it's, if you look at the list of inkers, it doesn't seem that it's just the, something the inkers chose to do. Yeah, I definitely think there was a thicker inking style around this time. Absolutely. And definitely there's a lot of heavy blacks in the shadows and some stuff like that. So just stylistically, there's a few things that don't work as well for me as I would like them to. Yeah. And for me, it's a little hard sometimes to say, okay, how much of this is the inker, the colorist, the the artist, and, and things of that sort. I agree with that. But again, when you look at all of these inkers and artists and colorists kind of for their whole career, and you go, oh yeah, it's from 1999 to 2005 that their stuff looks off. You begin to go, oh, maybe it is something in the technology. No, certainly I, I think that's a definite probability because, again, that's as people were figuring out both how to do the digital coloring, how to do the digital post-production, and how to print that. Yeah. So I think there were changes happening at every level that contribute to that. There's some places here where I don't think it's the technology at all. I think it was an intentional heavy use of blacks for the shadows and some things oh, yeah. like that. There, there, There's definitely some artistic choices as well, no doubt about it. But like I said, even page by page, the inking goes from very heavy to very light touch, sometimes just one page to the next. I gotta wonder if that's just somebody having spent too much time on one page and trying to, to catch it up on the next or something like that, possibly. I just, I don't know. It is possible. It's also possible, again, something in the digital file, they just, for some reason, turned up the contrast on one and not as much on the other, and you get that effect or something. Yeah, totally. Lots of possibilities. Yep. Now, this was an interesting storyline for the, the JLA at the time, because it really sets up a major status quo for the Justice League and its relationship with, with Batman. Absolutely. Now, at this point in time, Batman's characterization was pretty much, not only is he the ultimate planner, he's a bit of a jerk. And in this story, Ra's al Ghul has managed to, to get into Batman's digital files, pull up his uh, plans for what to do if the Justice League were to ever go rogue, and enacts them. And when the Justice League gets wind of that, they're none too happy, is, is understandable. Now, Mark Wade, I've... I've seen him at numerous panels at conventions and stuff like that, and he's mentioned at times that one of the techniques he sometimes uses in writing is to basically back himself into a corner, figuring if he doesn't know how he's going to get out of it, there's no way we, the readers, could. And then the next issue, the challenge is, okay, I got to get out of that, let's move forward and such. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell how much of what he was doing here was kind of intricately planned or how much of it was just you know, pushing himself over the edge and, and pulling himself back up. Because there are a few of the ideas of how to take out some of the, the Justice Leaguers. It's like, okay, that's clever. That makes sense. There's one or two. It's like, yeah, I don't know about that one. Okay. Sean is interesting, but it 
in some ways seems to make sense. Turn a Martian into a torch is an interesting theory. It's funny because that's the technique I almost would have used on Aquaman because there's some elements that burst into flames underwater. Yeah, absolutely. That one I thought was was interesting. The nanite approach to it and such. Okay, fine. You got to do it somehow, I guess. Yeah, you got to figure out some way to make it work. Freezing Plastic Man makes as much sense as anything else. Yeah, shattering them. Okay. But Wonder Woman basically tapping into her inner competitiveness and, and locking her in a, a like a VR thing, that seemed rather super science-y, and I've got to think there's a better way to, to do that, to take care of her. Yeah, Wonder Woman might be one of the more... I mean, it's a good idea. It doesn't seem Wonder Woman specific. That's one that you could have used with any of them. I mean, to basically lock them in a VR they're unaware of, yeah. And having them fight someone, you could do, you could have done that to any of them. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Matter of fact, that probably would have been a really good one for the Flash. Yeah. If you could have a VR that kept up with him. The Superman is vital to the story point. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you need Batman's synthetic Krypton, you know, Kryptonite. I mean, that that's kind of vital to this whole story. Yeah, yeah. And it would make sense that Batman would have plans against all the Justice Leakers. Absolutely. Aquaman and the fear toxin's a little weird. No, you know, that's not the most original idea, but whatever, it works. Making Kyle go blind is genius. It didn't seem to work the way I thought the power ring worked at the time. And I almost would have gone with just get it to where he can't focus. The question is, are you fighting a Green Lantern or are you fighting a visual artist? And Kyle is a visual artist. I think it works better than necessarily a generic Green Lantern. Yeah, but if you can have a plan that would be effective against any Green Lantern versus one specific to Kyle, yeah, Batman, I think, would go with the, you know, all-purpose plan. That is a valid argument, no doubt. And again, there's nothing wrong with what Mark Wade came up with here. There were just a couple where I, I would have gone in a different direction myself, is, is all yeah. I'm saying. I think the way to get Batman's undivided attention absolutely made sense. And I think the story kind of hinges on that because, again, as it's pointed out, when Batman realizes what's going on, if he hadn't been distracted, he'd have been able to nullify all this and it would have been fairly easy to take care of. Wouldn't have been that big of a deal. Yeah. So, What about the dyslexia frequency for the rest of the world's population? Okay, that one I, I had some issues with. Yeah, I, I tend to be with you. <laughs> I, I'm willing to give a super science harmonic, okay, we just can't read or something like that. But that's not actually what we get here. If you get to a little later in the story, I think it's the uh, third part of it, mm-hmm. where it's really amped up and now it's not just you can't read, you can't understand what other people are saying. Yeah. Now, kudos to the lettering team where they're using different language character sets and stuff like that. So it looks as if everybody's speaking a different language. And I thought that was pretty cool. But where that kind of didn't work for me was when we get to the point where Superman is kind of listening in on everything, and it seems like he's hearing the different languages being spoken by the people. So this device didn't render people unable to understand a language they already knew. It seemed to flip them over to a language they didn't know and somehow do it to where no two people in the same area were speaking the same language. Well, he literally gave them the God Tower of Babel issue. For those that remember our Bible stories, Mm -hmm. that was the Tower of Babel. No, absolutely. But at that point, (laughs) there was 
as I recall it, and I'm no Bible expert by any stretch, one language and then suddenly everybody had their own language. Fair enough. Here, it seemed like everybody, there was already the planet (laughs) full of languages. Yes. Now people all just flipped to different ones and no two people in the same area knew it. Fair enough. And it makes as much sense as, as anything, I guess. It just seemed a little, a little weird. It just, it seemed like the people were, even if you get the paranoia takes over, anything messing that much with the speech and nerves you'd think would cause mass vertigo. And you'd render people unable to do many other things other than just speak and read. That that was my issue. I'm like, how do you hone in on a brainwave that close? You know, that was kind of I'm like, wouldn't this just give everybody vertigo? And they'd lay on the floor in a ball thinking the room was spinning. I mean, I, I took it as somehow targeting the language center of the brain. Yeah. So it's not going to affect your inner ear and, and your sense of balance or something. Although, I agree, <laughs> that seems as likely as anything else. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, again, when we get to that double-page splash and where there's the different people, it's like the uh, the stuff at the UN, yeah. people at a police station or whatever. It, I I didn't recognize the character sets. I don't know how many of them are from legit languages, how many of them are just, you know, doodles or, or fictional languages or something. I was going to say that UN page, these look like these look like the Tolkien languages. I was just starting to wonder that. Um, no Tolkien expert by any stretch. I, I'm very ignorant in that area, but yeah. Yeah. So how that worked, I don't know. <laughs> how Oracle figured it out when she couldn't read her computer, I'm still puzzled by that. Yeah, th- that was weird. That a, This whole story about the JLA and somehow Oracle was the one that kind of figured all this out, sort of. Well, she was a Justice Leaguer at this point, wasn't she? There's a whole thing mentioned about how her and someone, oh, and Steel have been, have self-activated as auxiliary members, I think in issue two, right before she kind of figures it out. Mm-hmm. Somewhere, I believe in issue two, Part someone two. mentions, yeah, yeah, sorry, issue 44, uh, someone mentions, I think Aquaman is like saying, well, Steel and Oracle have quietly rejoined us as auxiliary members, but that's not public knowledge kind of thing. Okay. It's kind of a weird moment. Well, this is an interesting time for the Justice League because we've got a lot of core members, a few filling in for the slots, because, you know, Wally and Kyle, I mean, you usually have a flash and a, a, a lantern on the team. Yeah. But then when you've got, you know, Plastic Man and then the auxiliary members of, of Oracle and Steel, it's it's not uncommon for the Justice League to have the uh, the non-Core 7, you know? Yeah. So. Well, and we're not that far from just having gotten Superman back at this point. Back from? From the Blue Energy version. Oh, okay, which yeah, is yeah. Where he, which is where he was when this title started. And like we said, these issues are 43 to 46. So, yeah, he'd I th- been blue thought- energy for like the first 10. Yeah, I was going to say first 10 or 12 or something like that. But um, yeah. so we're at this point two, three years after that, aren't we? Yeah, fair enough. Okay. Yeah, I guess we are 20, 30 issues later. Okay. Yeah. But this is the run where down the line we get a, a radically. Is it this one or another one where we get Congorilla and that group? Maybe that that's a later run. That is the next run, and that's like 50 issues into that next run. Yeah, okay. That's the one after JSA, and then the relaunch of this one as Justice League instead of JLA. Right. Although (laughs) I think that 
both the JLA, both the Justice League of America and Justice Society of America titles had, it, I think at times, the JLA, JSA logos on them, because that's not confusing. Yes. I'm just trying to follow the track of from Justice League of America through the different titles it rotates through, sometimes branching out to multiple titles, sometimes collapsing back down, gets to be rather confusing. Yeah, I'm trying. This one, as I remember, started in the late 90s and went 125 issues. Which is one of the longer runs. Yeah, I mean, you had Grant Morrison, Mark Wade. Then I'm trying to, I think John Byrne took a shot. I think Joe Kelly took a few issues. As I remember, it ended with either Busick or Bob Harris. Jeff Johns did an arc or two. Morrison and Wade are kind of the solid first half of this. Mm-hmm. And then, then it gets real kind of random after that with people filling in for three, four, six, eight months at a time. Well, and some of the artists they got, Brian Hitch, oh, yeah. J.H. Williams. Yep. I want to say Alan Davis, but I forget who all they had. There were some times they had just a really top-flight team on this, both in terms of characters and creators. Yeah. And really, this sets up Batman being on the outs for the Justice League, and that lasts a while and has ramifications well beyond that. Well, absolutely. And ultimately, isn't that what leads us to the OMAC project in Infinite Crisis? Man, that's, this is continuity from 20 plus years ago. Fair enough. <laughs> I would have to give it some thought as to when what happened, what led up to what. But it, it definitely, you know, had ramifications, not just something that was swept under the rug. No. And when we get to the end of the story and they're doing the vote as to who wants to keep Batman on the team, who wants to throw him off the team, mm-hmm. that was one where, I mean, a, a giant chunk of the issue was devoted to who's voting how and why, and all of it kind of made sense or whatnot, but I think most of the characters could have voted the other way and had just a good of a justification for doing so, you know? So I think these characters are are well-defined enough that give you some leeway depending which direction direction the writer wants to go with them, and how convincing of a debate he can put behind that. Yeah, I don't know if it's as obvious. I think all the characters, you get a lot of, well, I'm angry, but he definitely still has a value, and I'm angry and I can never work with him again. It seems random how they chose those sides. I don't I don't think it's obvious who would go which way or why. Well, no, I agree with that entirely. It's not obvious. Yeah. I think you could have each of these characters go either way and have a compelling reason for it. Yes. So there is a bit of a, a toying cost. Yeah. You know, Wonder Woman, if I can't trust him, let's let's throw him out. Yeah. It could have just as easily been it was a tactically sound move. Yeah. He is who he is. We accept him for that. We need him for that kind of a deal. Let's keep him in. Yeah. You know, likewise, Superman seems to be voting to get rid of him. And I think just as easily could have said, we trust him. He's the least powered of us. And he took us all out. Yeah. You know, kind of a thing. Likewise, Wonder Woman's argument could have just as easily been, you know, he's dangerous, therefore we must keep him close. I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways they could have gone. Yeah, and this whole, and maybe you've got a better explanation. With this being Wally and Kyle instead of Barry and Hal, why is Wally so furious over Kyle mentioning Hal? If it was Barry, I'd get it. But it was just like, well, he's the guy in the flash suit, so we'll make him the one mad about it. I, I don't know. No, 
I think it's more a matter of there's still Wally thinking he's the pretender to the throne. I mean, Kyle got his ring by just standing in the right alley at the right time. Yes. <laughs> he was not chosen. It was not a legacy thing. It was dumb luck. Fair enough. Okay. Whereas at this point, not only was Wally Kid Flash to the Flash and had the mantle, you know, fairly effectively handed down to him, there's, you know, going back another generation with, with Jay Garrick and such. And again, if, and I understand then, again, I, I get it if he felt Barry was being disrespected, but I'm not sure Wally had the ties to Hal that Barry did, which would not explain why Wally is so upset on Hal's behalf. He does and he doesn't because Wally definitely had the hero worship for Barry. Yeah. You know, Barry hung out with Hal a lot. Yes. So I think there's a transitive property to be had there. Okay. You know, out of all of the people in the room, other than Plastic Man at that point, the most outsider-ish of them is Kyle. All the rest are either, you know, longtime Justice Leaguers or Titan. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I, I do think it's a little odd that it came up the way it did. Yeah. And Kyle being the one saying, you know, hey, maybe him having the ability or Batman being able to take us all out isn't a bad thing. Yeah. You know. And then citing a, I'm trying to think how long Coast ago Coast City was at this point, and I don't think it was that long. Well, you had to have enough time to bring Clark back after Coast City, and then establish Clark again, then and then go, turn him into the Electro Superman, and then turn him and back then turn again. Turn him back exactly. Okay, so it's probably been a year or two. Hence, Wallace's reaction: Don't bring Hal into this. Versus, it's too soon to bring up Coast City. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I mean, that's the funny part with the the sliding timeline of comics is it doesn't matter how much publishing time there was between, you know, when they took out Coast City and this story, but you look at the mile marker events that we just listed off that happened between the two. You know, Superman dies, Superman comes back, Superman transforms, Superman transforms again, you know. And that's just off the top of our head. (laughs) Very true. I mean, there's a certain newspaper headline kind of mile marker elapsed time a correlation to be had in yep. comics. And that's something I think the writers tend to lose sight of at times. Well, but I think with the exception of like a book like Savage Dragon, where you've got a very real timeline, that's the only way to kind of even begin as readers to put a timeline together. Yeah, but the problem is when the writers and editors aren't keeping that sort of a thing in mind. There's Mm. lots of ways to have stories matter. This story matters to the Justice League. Absolutely, it does. Is it something that's going to literally be a newspaper headline on the Daily Planet? No, Daily Planet's unaware of it. Yeah. But you could only do so many of these sorts of pivotal stories before it feels like, okay, this had to have taken more than a couple of days of story, or a couple of weeks, or a couple of months even, you know, because so much has happened. Yeah. Because really, the... The events of this issue seem to take place in the span of, I guess, a day or so. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't seem very long. And there are some stories that multiple days elapse in, even though not much happens in them, if you know what I mean. Yeah. You know, just a, a simple caption of weeks later. It's like, dude, really? But this is one where the the amount of story juice they got out of this, I thought, was was fairly good at the time. Yeah, and this would have been published, what, mid late summer of 2000? Yeah, late summer. I think it started around July-ish, give or take. Yeah. 
So, but setting up a story like this, knowing you can play off it for a couple of arcs and such, and then kind of resolve or whatnot, works well. Yeah. I don't know that they could do this story today, because I think at this point, all of these characters would expect Batman to have these plans, and just, well, that's how it is. Yeah. Well, and the odd thing is he makes the, is it in issue three or four, where he makes the reference to the Injustice League? And the body swap, I gotta admit, I had to look that up. Was it the Injustice League? I thought it was the Silver Age miniseries that they were referencing. Yes, which is the Injustice League. The Injustice League swapped bodies. Okay, well, you gotta be careful how you phrase that kind of stuff, because when you say that, I'm thinking of JLA, I want to say somewhere around the 167 part, where... I forget if it was the Injustice League or the Secret Society. Of, it was the Secret Society of Supervillains swap bodies with the Justice League for a little bit. Yeah, well, I had to look it up. Because this clearly references the Silver Age miniseries. The Silver Age miniseries from 2000. Yeah. Yeah, with, I don't even know how to pronounce it, a Gammy, a Gamino? Sure, we'll go with that. Yeah, but that miniseries implied it was in the past by quite yes. a bit. So yeah, that was... Having not read that or remembered anything about it, that that was slightly confusing. Yeah, but it was recent memory, publishing time-wise, and it was written by Mark Wade. Fair enough. So, but that is one of the, the dangers with, with referencing past stories and stuff. It may be fresh in the mind of readers of the time, Yeah. but those of us reading it, you know, two decades later or whatever. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It can be a little lost. But yeah, if you go back to Justice League of America 167 and thereabouts, that's when the Wizard, uh, Blockbuster, and a few others swap bodies with a couple of the Justice Leaguers. Mm. Which also would have been perfectly good rationale for why to have plans for this. Yeah. So, it was an interesting story, but they do gloss over how did Roz get a hold of all of this, how was he able to put it into action so quickly, you know, things of that sort. And then at the end, oh yeah, we took care of Roz, he's not that big of a threat, it'll take him a while to rebuild or something. <laughs> yeah. So there's some definite hand-waving going on in this story. I understand while the theft of the bodies would have plagued Bruce, I'm not a thousand percent sure he would have reacted the same way, or reacted the way he did in the face of the Lazarus bit. That seemed interesting to me. Cause in terms even of Ro- him well, cause not- even- even Roz was like, hey, don't you want this? And Bruce doesn't contemplate, consider, seemingly at all, which just seems odd. Not not that he would necessarily make a different choice, but the fact that he wouldn't think about it a second seemed odd. Not to me. Okay, fair enough. I think he was saying it as clear manipulation by Roz, and he was having none of it. Yeah, fair enough. And let's face it, if Batman had wanted to resurrect his parents, he easily could have done so by now. Well, yeah, that is true. Through, I mean, half a dozen different mechanisms. Yeah. And again, 20 years of hindsight, though, having now, having seen Thomas Wayne return several times and in several different forms, it changes the way you remember how Bruce reacts or would react to that. Mm hmm. I, I think that's part of it, too. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Most of which I think started with Flashpoint. Yeah. Well, and again, this is literally different Batman than we have today. Even though this, the Batman title and storyline made it through the new 52 reboot surprisingly intact, 
they've still, you know, redone the backstory a little bit here and there and the personality and such. But this would have been the same one we had going into Flashpoint, right? That was kind of the end of that one. I am trying to think through... Unless you think this one ended when he went back to the past at the end of Final Crisis. No, I don't I don't think so, because that was very much a, a kind of a straight line for that character and such, uh, yeah. plot-wise and stuff. I'm just trying to think through, because this would have been, again, 2000. Yeah. We would have had Infinite Crisis after that. Yep. And I'm trying to think how much he would have changed for that. Well, and then you have the missing year in 52, and him that where he is there. Yeah. And then then Final Crisis. Yeah. And then the R.I.P. slash whatever that was into Final Crisis. Yeah, I'd have to go back through particularly Infinite Crisis to kind of figure out what sort of impact I felt it had on on the Batman continuity and such. Yeah. But that's the thing. Wait a few years and and you've either got a different take because of a different creator or they've actually flat out redone the character time-wise. Yeah. So... I still think overall this is probably the most memorable series from this run, which I still think is one of the better JLA runs, kind of, ever. I kind of agree, kind of disagree in so much as I think there's an arc or two after this that could only happen because of this arc that were pretty good. That's true, yeah. I think when they kind of pull Batman back into the fold, and when they've kind of split the heroes from their alter egos... Yeah, yeah, yeah because I felt that had better art and had some very interesting storyline stuff there, too. But I feel that, again, Wade is a very talented writer. He did a a good job on the Justice League title here. I just, there are a couple of parts in this story and the title as a whole where the art just wasn't something I was loving. Yeah. So you're referring to, like, kind of all for one about a year later when Brian Hitch was on the art and Mark Wade was still writing? Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. But I don't, you couldn't have done that story, I think, without this and such. No, I, I absolutely agree with that. You know, they were definitely playing around with the concept of, of who are these characters and how do they interrelate, and I enjoy that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, me too. And they were still, you know, fighting crime and, and you know, trying to make the world a better place, so that's yeah. always nice too. So I think it's a run worth checking out. I think this is definitely a, a good arc on it. And again, four issues... They get in, they tell the story, they, they move it along and get out, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And fairly easily available for, and you know, the trade, the soft cover is still pretty easy to find, you know, for 10, 12 bucks. The hardcover is 25. It's available digitally per issue or in the DC Infinite. So yeah, it's rel- relatively easy to find. Cool. That's good. Yeah. I would think anything from. The last 10 years absolutely should be trivial to find, because if that's not like on DC Infinite, I'd be dismayed and shocked. I (laughs) would say going back another 10 years to the turn of the century, all of that, because it's modern, you know, production type stuff, should be pretty available. I think it's when you start going too much further back, it comes down to have they already collected it, or is it something that's harder to find entry and exit points to do collections on? and therefore probably isn't going to be on the, the digital apps, either at Marvel or DC. Yeah. So. Yeah. For 10 to $20, depending on your format, you can get it digitally, paperback, hardcover, etc. So yeah, it's pretty available. Cool. So yeah, I would definitely recommend uh, checking it out if you get a chance. Yeah, definitely. 
Anything else? No, I think I'm good. Cool. Recording clips for the preview Spotlight episodes is easy, and we've got an open submission policy for these episodes. Please send in clips to support the comics you love as often as you can. If you'd like to get email reminders for the preview Spotlight episodes, you can join the emailing list on the main page of the comicbookpage.com website. The deadline is typically the second Saturday of the month at 9 a.m. Check the main page of the website for more information and the exact deadline for the next preview Spotlight. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.